Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Big Chief with a badge, a cattle prod and a head on a stick. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's a big day up in Liverpool as the Labour Party wrestles with the big decision of the week. Forget Jeremy Corbyn's speech tomorrow, forget John McDonald's land grab for attention yesterday. Today it's all about Brexit and what position Labour will actually take up for the rest of the EU campaign. Keir Starmer, the shadow Brexit secretary, says all options are open, but a vote on the floor of the conference will decide whether Labour wants to keep staying in the EU on the table. We'll know more in a few hours' time. 03444991000. Don't worry though. Because meanwhile, back in the real world, it's all about energy. A French oil company has just discovered the biggest natural gas field west of Shetland in the North Sea. There could be as much as one trillion cubic feet of gas, and that's equivalent to 175 million barrels of oil. If that doesn't kickstart another bid for Scottish independence, I don't know what will. Prices, though, just keep going up, don't they? Is nationalisation the answer? Uh, 0344-499-1000. Daisy McAndrews here, and she'll be telling me whether she thinks David Beckham has had a hair transplant and how she deals with nuisance corn. I think you'll be impressed. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, and Daisy McAndrew on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 03444991000. Coming up, we're going to speak to uh, Alex Dibble, uh, who's our uh, talk radio roving reporter. He's gone down to Dover, Daisy, to find out uh, how they're preparing uh, for whatever it is that's going to happen, which we don't yet know. They're putting a wall uh, up. Yeah, putting a wall up. <laughs> Build a wall. That'll be probably the best thing to do. Now, let's speak to Graham Stringer, uh, who is, of course, up uh, at the Labour Party conference in Liverpool. Uh, Graham, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning. Thanks very much for joining us. Now, um, I don't know whether you can make head and tail of Labour Party policy on uh, on Brexit because I've just watched Keir Starmer and listened to a bit of his speech. I'm not quite sure where he was going with it. I think what you're saying, and I, I don't think it's a great secret, is a classic conference uh, fudge. Yes. Uh, which uh, puts things off. It's quite clear that Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell uh, and most of the trade unions do not want a second referendum. So there's a form of words which holds out the possibility of holding a second referendum uh, sometime in the future, which I think is highly unlikely. Yeah. To I mean, how, Im- how important, sorry to interrupt, how important is it, Graham, for them to sort of have policy that they want one, though? I mean, I presume you prefer them to say they don't want one, but it would seem to me that they're trying to kind of use the referendum as a last resort if they can't force an election. I, I, I think there are people in the Labour Party who uh, just want to overturn the first referendum decision. I think that's wrong. I think it would be wrong to hold a second referendum when the first referendum hasn't been implemented. Right. How could a second how could a second referendum have any uh, credibility uh, whatsoever? I mean, there are also uh, practical reasons why it would be uh, difficult. The Scottish referendum had two years of debate. The EU referendum had a year of debate. It perhaps takes three or four months to get through 
parliament, uh, pass an act of parliament to have a referendum. So it's quite impractical as well as completely uh, wrong in principle. So I think we will see a very complicated play out of uh, whatever the government comes back with in October and November. And we live in a parliamentary democracy. Parliament will decide. And if Parliament uh, can't decide, uh, then we will have a general election. I think that's um, that's more or less inevitable. Well, you think the general election is inevitable, Graham? No, I think that process is inevitable. Right. Either par- par- Parliament will decide. We, we do, after all, live in a yeah. parliamentary democracy. And if uh, the House of Commons and House of Lords can't come to a conclusion, and I think primarily the Commons, uh, then there will be a general election. I think, well, I would like a general election because the core business of the Labour MP is to get rid of the Conservative government. Mm. I think I think it is uh, possible uh, rather than probable. Mm. Um, but- and Graham, just coming back to, to the party conference, um, what's obviously there are, there are elements that you're not happy about, but what's the general mood um, amongst the MPs rather than the delegates? Well, I, I think, again, it's uh, it, it's mixed. Uh, I, I think what's happened at this conference is the bulk of MPs, most of whom didn't vote for Jeremy Corbyn, have uh, come to terms with the fact that Jeremy has been to be the leader into the next general election and that there is a programme uh, now that John MacDonald outlined a, a great deal of yesterday that people can unite behind. There are some... Uh, members of Parliament, Labour members of Parliament, who are neither happy with uh, Jeremy Corbyn nor with the uh, decision to honour the the referendum. It's a sort of 90% overlap, and I think those people are are deeply unhappy. And as far as uh, wanting a general election, obviously, as you say, your main task in life is to dislodge the Tory government. When would you want that election to be? Because would November not be a little bit too soon? Um... I think it would be uh, if and when the government lost a vote of uh, confidence. Yes, but I'm asking uh, you whether you, when you would prefer that to be, because as much as I keep hearing senior Labour figures saying, oh, we're ready for an election, you don't really want to take you, take the country through Brexit, do you? Um, I, I think any opposition has to answer, uh, yes, we do, because no, nobody could be as incompetent as Theresa May's government has been in trying to negotiate uh, the position decided by the people of the United Kingdom in 2016. While it will be difficult, I think we would make a better job of it uh, than Theresa May, who took 18 months to come to a position and then came to a position that checkers that neither the EU would accept or the House of Commons. Neither was ever going to accept it. It was a bonkers position uh, for her to have, and I think uh, gradually... Uh, she's realised that. She was told that in Austria last week, but anybody could have told her that as soon as she published the Chequers plan. And given that you're a Mancunian uh, by birth, would you say it's a bit like coming in after Louis van Gaal or coming in after David Moyes? <laughs> <laughs> well, in my view, it would be LVG, who's the worst manager in my opinion Manchester United has ever, uh, ever had. We would be bound to do better. Ches Mourinho hasn't won the Premiership, but he has done better. He's won trophies and uh, pushed Manchester United up the table. And I think we would hope to do even better than that. And uh, 
uh, become a, a, a very good government. And, and, no and, and while staying in Europe, of course. Graham, thank you very much <laughs> indeed. Uh, Graham Stringer, Labour MP uh, for Blackley and Broughton, uh, talking about why he believes the real answer should be a general election. But if you try to go alone, don't think I'll understand This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We've been watching uh, Keir Starmer up at Labour Conference making lots of noises about uh, our partners in Europe, our friends in Europe, our friends in the European Union. Uh, we've just spoken as well to Graham Stringer MP there, uh, who's a lever, uh, who says that uh, he'd rather see a general election than a second referendum. Uh, it's all a bit confusing coming out of Labour. We're going to go to Alex Dibble in a moment, uh, who is, of course, Talk Radio's man on the street. He's down in Dover, uh, and he's with uh, one of the very important people down there, Dover District Councillor Nigel Collar, uh, who's going to be telling us all about... What what sort of preparations are being put in place come uh, Brexit Day on March 29th of last year. But I just want to bring something to your attention, Daisy, before we do that. Uh, and it's a front page of the Daily Mail in which it says, Bye bye, bodyguard. Hello to the killer BBC thriller that's ten times better. Now, we haven't spoken about the bodyguard yet, but we will. Uh, but obviously this is the new Killing Eve uh, show that everybody which else is talking about. Which I am completely hooked on. Are you? It is It is. Yeah, brilliant. I haven't started watching it yet, but um, I'm told it's a lot better than Bodyguard. It's you a know, lot I've better. Been the script is so good, the acting is brilliant, and it's quirky. It's yeah. a bit different. Yes. Well, I've been yeah. blocked, apparently, by the production company that makes Bodyguard uh, for no reason on Twitter. Why? What have you done? Well, I've been I've been <laughs> saying it's rubbish, right? Who have you been well, uh, rude I mean, to? Well, I, I mean, I haven't been blocked by Keely Hawes, who, whose tweet I saw yesterday, she put out this tweet saying congratulations to everybody yeah. because they got the 11 million viewers yeah, and the peak was incredible biggest uh, audience I think for more than a decade and so I just had a look at the other people in it and she put Madden in it who's the bodyguard himself yeah, right yeah. so I checked his he hadn't blocked me and then I thought oh well Prog Productions I wonder what else they do so I went to look on their Twitter account and I'm blocked and I just <laughs> thought well come on guys I mean people don't everybody doesn't have to be sort of part of the religion that loves you but that um, is that is daft because you know everybody but particularly creative types should, yeah. should take a bit of criticism yeah, exactly. so that they know, you know what people like and what people don't like well I mean like. people are constantly criticising me I don't block them just because they say they don't like me or I've done something useless on the show or the, you know, they, I mean, even if I, they're particularly abusive, I don't always block them. I really enjoyed the bodyguard, but at the end, it did get sillier and sillier. It did. And the last one, and I was, so, I, mean, I would have paused it if I could have been bothered to kind of go, well, hang on a minute, what's going on? Who's no, that? I know, I know exactly. We'll come back to that. Now, let's go down to Dover, uh, where Alex Dibble uh, is standing there with um, Dover District Councillor Nigel Collar. Uh, very good morning to you, Alex. Good morning, Mike. That's right. It's an absolutely gorgeous day down in Dover. The sun is shining. We can see the white cliffs just uh, in front of us here. Can you see any and... blue birds flying? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I can see, though? I can see France, um, which is a, which is a, shows you just how good the visibility is mm. today. Um, and you might just be able to hear the tide coming in, the, the sea lapping against the seafront here where we are. And there are a couple of swimmers even. I'm not sure if they're Blimey. practicing for a channel They're trying channel to escape, I think, not, those but, guys. But they're out there. Um, they're going out into the sea, which is wonderful. Um, and as you say, I'm here with Councillor Nigel Collar from Dover District Council. Um, Nigel, we can see Dover Castle up on the hill there looking wonderful. And in terms of tourism, I want to ask you first of all, you know, come Brexit and when we're leaving the European Union, 
how much will that affect tourism in a place like Dover where you have so many people coming in from Europe and even going up, you were saying to me a moment ago, to Dover Castle, school trips from Europe and things like that. Is that going to be a real hit for you guys? Depends on the freedom of movement, how we, how we end up with it. And I, I just, like everybody else in the country, just wish we were told something and, and some decisions were made. So that uncertainty is definitely difficult for you and the rest of Dover? Yes, it is. Although, to be honest, as I said to you earlier, Alex, um, in the local pubs and restaurants, there's no talk about Brexit anymore. People are just fed up with listening about it. Well, I'm sorry you're having to talk to me about it. Um, I, I have been speaking to a couple of business owners in, in Dover this morning, and I just want you to play you this, because this is Kevin, who, who runs a sandwich bar, and also John, who's a jeweller in the town. And I was speaking to them about you know, the uncertainty and how they feel about it. Have a listen to this. Without a deal, they're, they're still going to be governed by the rules that we're governed by now. What was the point of the referendum to, have a, to, to come out if we can't do a deal? If it's a sort of doomsday scenario where we end up with traffic blocking the roads, then it will actually grind to a halt. Nobody will be able to get into the town and nobody will be able to get out of the town. That was John, the, the jeweller, Nigel, and he was saying to me that in that sort of doomsday scenario, people like him, there'll be no reason for them to stay in Dover if they just simply can't get the people through, through their doors, and, and that is worrying, isn't it? Indeed, that's why uh, I'm working with others um, to uh, see what we can do about that. Um, I've asked for a meeting with the cabinet member at Kent County Council because we've, we've got a project on the table which, with KCC's backing and indeed a bit of government money, we could help alleviate the problem that John's, uh, John's speaking about because I know John well, he's an old Dover lad the same as I am and I don't think either of us want to see the town suffer but we've got to make sure our arterial roads are kept open. Nigel, can I ask you a question? Because, I mean, we hear an awful lot about the M20 and how Mm -hmm. there's going to be tailbacks and lorry uh, problems uh, all the way from possibly Dover back to London, really. Um, What sort of trouble do you think um, Dover could have and what alternative kind of plans have you got? Because presumably if the lorries are going to be uh, uh, queuing up all over the M20, which they do sometimes anyway, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what happens in the actual town of Dover itself? Well, you've only got the M20, which you mentioned, Mike. You've got the M2 as well, which yeah. uh, plants in uh, to my left. Well, I'm looking at Alex, so I can see the traffic coming off the A2, the A2 section of the M2 now. Um, we've got a, a, a system in uh, on the M20, or the A20, when it comes off from being a motorway through Dover, called Dover TAP. It stands for Traffic Access Protocol, but TAP is a good name for it because it drip feeds the trucks through the town centre. So the town centre should be fairly clear of trucks. But the problem is, once that happens, you get them coming around on the Kent network of roads and uh, that's when the trouble starts. Yes. And how would it affect things like the ferry port? Because obviously, you know, everybody who lives anywhere south of Birmingham has probably been to Dover and gone over to France uh, in one way or another from uh, from that particular uh, exit terminal. Um, I mean, are, are those people talking to you guys um, uh, in the in Dover district? Are they talking to you about what, what plans they've got for, for what happens after March 29th? Well, a lot of this rest is Highways England who have the... Um, responsible for the strategic roads, the M2 and the M20. And uh, we've had visits from various factors of that. Uh, we've told them what we want. We've told them what we think we need. Yeah. We've told them we, we want their backing on it. And I say my next move is to take this project we're looking at up to Kent County Council to get their backing because they are the highway authority not on the strategic roads. Sure. And because presumably, even though you were saying earlier to Alex that it's difficult to know 
precisely what to do because nobody really knows what the outcome is going to be yet. Um, you must, in the end, you'll have to start running kind of, um, you know, uh, trials of, of, of things, won't you? Well, I understand, and it's not meetings I go to, but one of my senior officers goes to, um, is a, a strategic meeting with all the agencies there, and they are talking about trialling various aspects of what they think might help the situation. But right. it comes down to um, telling the lorry driver where to go, and he's got to go where you tell him to. Right, OK. Are you, are you, a final question for you. Are you worried, Nigel? <laughs> I, like, I like that one, Mike. At my age, you don't worry about anything. You, <laughs> but, you, but you face challenges as they come up. OK, all right. So, so you're so you're okay with whatever happens. In other words, I wouldn't say I was okay. Obviously, I'm disturbed at the fact that nothing's moving. But uh, as I said to Alex earlier, you don't get angry about it because once you get angry, you lost your argument. No, indeed. Well, listen. Thanks very much indeed. Good luck with it. I'm sure we're we'll talking right. to you again, Dover District Councillor Nigel Collar. They're talking to Alex Dibble. Alex, thanks very much for uh, uh, for getting down to Dover to find out. Sounds like a shambles, doesn't it? Well, and we I mean, know if you were planning a, a party, if you were planning a party for March the 29th next year, you'd have more in place than we currently have in place of for course. leaving the European of Union. Course. Well, I did. I did like Nigel's finding, um, final comment of you know, once you get angry, you've lost the argument. It's something this may, may, maybe we could adopt. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you see, I don't really ever get angry. I mean, I do get angry. I've never been angry in here. People think I get angry, but you really haven't seen me getting angry, I promise you. Uh, you have to ask my children is that, about a, that. is that a threat or a promise? No, well, it could be either. It's up to you. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now I'm the king of the swingers, oh, the jungle VIP. I've reached the top and had to stop and that's what's bothering me. I want to be a man, man cub, and stroll right into town. And be just like the other men, I'm tired of walking around, oh. Coming up a little bit later on, we're going to be looking at David Beckham. There's some new pictures of uh, Mr. Beckham uh, in which it looks as though he's certainly darkened his hair. Uh, whether or not he's had a hair transplant, difficult to say. But we were watching a video earlier on, uh, just before the show started, of some guy sort of shaking some kind of fibrous stuff onto his head. And it turns into hair. It's the most amazing thing you've ever seen. Tom says, I went to Ireland for a football tournament with a lad that used that hair stuff. It cost a fortune. We emptied the tub and filled it up with pepper. It took two days for him to notice. <laughs> See, that's the sort of thing that happens on boys' golf trips. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about golf now because Rupert Bell uh, is, of course, uh, TalkSport's esteemed golf commentator and correspondent. And he's over in Paris uh, at the moment because the Ryder Cup is about to get underway at the end of this week. Rupert, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Uh, good morning to you both. Yes, um, from um, Le Golf National, to be precise. Very nice. Where, uh, it, it, it is lovely. And at first time I came in this morning and you suddenly realised the sheer scale of where the Ryder Cup now is in the sort of global sporting, the, the stands, the hospitality areas. This event now is a huge deal and it's not a straightforward exercising in, in staging, but it this week, 
puts golf on the world map, world stage, obviously with Tiger winning last week. It just is a, a bigger deal. And as, a, as they say, a frisson of excitement in the build-up. Frisson, build very for, good. Well played. It, uh, yeah, no, well, that's the thing, isn't it? And it's a, it's a, For me, it's now a bit like, for this country, Wimbledon fortnight or the Open, you know, where everybody kind of watches it and everybody gets into golf for the weekend. Yes, and because it's so different. I mean, everyone... I mean, I was flying out of America on Sunday night and obviously on the big screens in the airports and everywhere, I've never seen... With NFL going on, you would have thought they'd all been watching the big matches that were going on there. No, they right. were all around watching Tiger win. He does put golf in a different dimension when it comes to the global stage. And obviously this event, it is one that is easily... that the sort of non-golf fan can can understand it's a straightforward team competition it's different the players love it and that's why um, countries like France it's the first time it will be staged in France spend a lot of money now wanting to stage it we're in four years time we head off to Italy for the for the Ryder Cup there we were of course in um, well last time we were Scotland on home soil but the thing is now, when will we like to see it back on British soil? Because there is so much money um, and will courses and things be able to afford to put it on and, and governments have to get involved now. It's a, it's a huge deal, the staging of this event. And, it is. Um, but what I was going to ask I, you is in the, the mm. Golf National place where mm. you are, have you spotted any mm. creches? Because apparently uh, some guy from the University of Edinburgh, Dr Andrew Murray, no relation, uh, reckons mm. that we should introduce creches uh, and more female-friendly kind of facilities in order to increase the popularity of, of what, as a playing sport, is kind of fading a little bit. Well, here's the problem. People start as juniors, then they go and, um, you know, everyone then has a family. Mm. And it's very, the golfing dynamic is, players are junior, you then go away from the game because places it can be expensive from your 20s to your 30s, and then you only pick the game up again, male and female, once your children are a little older. So I get the point, and that is one of the great dilemmas the sport of golf faces is encouraging people to continue to play because it's also time consuming and if you're working monday through friday and then someone says well i'm off going to play golf on on saturday yeah what do um the you know your family uh, commitments male and fe or female um it, it's a hard one and and that is the problem golf does have as a as a participant participating sport and i get where he's coming from and it is probably something. When the pros are on tour, creches are there are quite normal. So there's every chance there could be a creche around here somewhere. You know, Tommy Fleetwood's got a small child. Uh, his wife will be here. The wags um, are all there, are they? Oh, the wags are all there. It, it does look like at times an episode of Stepford Wives. But... Uh, <laughs> That's just the Americans. Well, Ruben, yeah, that's just Ruben, the Americans. Ruben, is it, Ruben, isn't the problem with golf and women more a historical mm. issue, which is we know, we women know, that we were never mm. wanted in the first place at the golf course. The golf course is an incredibly sexist place historically. Still, there are golf courses in this country that don't allow women, which is, frankly, a scandalous day and age. And so many of us think, well, if you don't want me, I don't want you. I don't want anything uh, to do with golf. Um, I, I think um, I'm a member of Broadway, uh, you say that to some of the, uh, what you've just said to the uh, fearsome ladies of Broadway, no, golf definitely has a place. I know, um, of course, I, for, those, for those who regularly go, but there are yeah. huge numbers that, yeah. that don't and yeah. wouldn't. 
Uh, I think there is an intimidating factor, and it is a question. Um, there are some outdated practices, like some clubs, I don't know how many, will probably say it's a male-only tea time on a Saturday morning because, of course, the men were working uh, all week and then they need their time. I think that you'll find that, as inc- I hope, has changed. Yeah. I'm sure there will be examples the, the courses will be like that, and of course there are male-only clubs still. Um, but that's, you know, it is a. But people will say, are... Rupert. I mean, and, and many men who who mm. feel as if they are slightly put upon now by the sort of yeah. the feminist brigade well, will say, well, well, well why can't men have a, a club of their own? You know, because women do. I mean, we were talking yesterday. There's an entire island in Finland where men are not allowed to go. Well, I, I know that, the, for instance, I think in Aberdeen, the Royal Aberdeen, yeah. next door is the women's club. Right. Now, I think, I think that is absolutely... They are private clubs, and what you do is your own business. And if that's the way you want to operate your business, then absolutely right. But in the main, I think the, the idea has to be golf has to find ways to make sure people feel comfortable. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily also mean that you've got to wear... If it means that that you want to wear shorts um, and um, socks, or even the, the, maybe the wrong type, then get over the, yourself the club in I concern. I think that's the point, because not only have they got this sort of sexist history, yeah. they've got an incredibly snobbish history, mm. you know, and, and sort of... Um, that they, they look snobbish to a lot of people, yeah. but then partly think, because yeah. of the dress code, but yeah. also there's a, but there's think, a classism. But I, but I think that's true. But the point yeah. is, is that you know you can then, as Rupert says, there's plenty of golf clubs. I think newer golf clubs, which are not as as bad as that. And nobody's forcing you to go and join Muirfield. I mean, you know, if I wanted to get yeah. into Muirfield, it wouldn't be that easy unless I knew somebody who was a member. It's not about just whether, whether you can get in because you're yes, a woman. But, but, but knowing that these like... places exist where there are such you know, snobbish attitudes and knowing that you know, at a certain time of day, certain members, because they're not smart enough, can't walk in front of the clubhouse, yeah, yeah. it's distasteful. Yeah. Is it? I, th- I mean, I, I get it irritates the heck out of me, but there are the Colonel Bufton Tuftons who do think that this is the way, you know, it's the That's club the game, the, yeah. The, the, that's the rules. And, but really, what you've got to do is that when people are time sensitive, and that means both men and women, and if they want to play the game, you know, they have got to feel appreciated. My wife's only just taken up the game, and at times suddenly think, well, if she, you know, if she does the wrong thing on the club, someone will tap on her shoulder and say, because you might not know all the rules. You've just got to accept, you've got to embrace anyone who comes in it and if this doctor in back in uh, edinburgh is saying this professor that this is something should be done then clubs you know of course it costs and to, to have the crash and and all the rules to have that but if it on a saturday you say right we're going to have a crash so if you've got small children you can come along and go and play your round of golf knowing that your children are perfectly safe whether you're a yeah. male or female uh, then then crack on and enjoy i mean even here we have baby changing facilities uh, in the men's loo here mm. now oh very <laughs> so, good very good, very good. Yeah, but I bet France. nobody uses them, though. I mean, it's France you're talking about, for heaven's sake. Well, well, I, well, I know my colleague Bob Bupka wouldn't know how to change no. the babies. Uh, no, well, we thought uh, uh, not to talk to but Bob about this particular subject. <laughs> but, I, but I do, but I do. Good for and, you, um, oh, so you brought was, your baby to work day, is it? Uh, well, I, I'm too old now to have a babies. I've got four of the. I've had four of the little critters. So, <laughs> but you just uh, know that people will say, "I go to the golf club to get yeah. away from screaming babies." Well, exactly. I don't want them but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Listen, Ruby, we're out of time. Thank you very much indeed. Enjoy the Ryder Cup. It's going to be yes, great. All on Talk Sport, of course. Daddy, daddy.
0344 Now, it comes to all of us, men in particular, of course, although it does happen to some women, your hair does get thinner as yep. you get older. And one of the things it's not so great to recognise is that, you know, when you uh, come out, well, in my case anyway, because I always think that I'm quite glad. I always say to whenever I go to the hairdressers, I'm like, I'm actually just quite glad that it's still there, to be <laughs> honest, rather than, you know, it seems to only grow mine now at the sides rather than on top. No, I and, know. And uh, when you kind of, you know, when you first go on holiday and you realise you've burnt the top of your head because actually when you were in the water, yeah. you could actually see quite a lot of the scalp. But I don't really worry about it. You know, I've never dyed my hair. I've never bothered about people thinking I'm maybe thinning a bit on top. And I've got a reasonable head of hair for my age, right? Uh, David Beckham, we're being told in the papers this morning, may or may not have had a hair transplant. But certainly people who know about these things are saying uh, he looks as though um, he's definitely made his hair thicker in some way, shape or form. Now, you and I both watched an amazing video this morning yeah. uh, in which you can sort of shake this stuff on your hair and it looks like it's hair. It's very weird. What Isn't was it, it called? I can't, I can't remember. remember. I can't remember what it was called, but it was an incredible sort of, um, you know, our producer, Con, doesn't believe it. I mean, that's how good it is. He's like, no, it's rubbish. Don't think that's actually true. But he but, does, um, Beckham does it like he's got that spray on hair. It yeah. Does, it does look fake. Yeah. But maybe it was just the, the photograph, I'd know. But, but it, it looks, looks to me bizarre. very much like the early stages of Wayne Rooney's hair transplant, where that didn't look as if it had kind of settled in yet. Because I think what they do is they actually insert the... The, the, the hair follicles into your head. Do they take them off your bottom? Uh, that's I, That I can't <laughs> tell you, but I mean, we'd lucky have an expert who might be able to in, enlighten you. Dr. Bessem Fajo uh, is here. Uh, he's the medical director at the Institute of Trichologists, and uh, we're going to find out from him what he thinks. Uh, Dr. Bessem, very good uh, afternoon to you. Good afternoon. How thank are you doing? You, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, clearly, there's a bit of speculation going on. It's always, I suppose, difficult to know. But can you tell by looking at a picture what, what if anything, David Beckham has done to his hair? Uh, it's very difficult to tell whether he's had a, a transplant or not. But certainly, I, I agree with what you were saying earlier. The hair does look uh, th- thicker. And, and looking at the photograph, I think, was taken of him maybe a month or six weeks ago. Yeah. It's a it's a big transformation, and and the only thing that can make you look that thick um, is 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 a, is a, is probably probably camouflage type products uh, like you were talking earlier, spray on hair. But it, there are a variety of products you can spray it. You could sprinkle it like a like a like a little. Is that is that the one we were looking at? Is called Kaboki. Is that the one? Is that the one? Yeah, that, that that is a brand name, okay. uh, and certainly one of uh, a very large number of brands. But they all do the same thing essentially. Um, and the, the general principle, it, they come in a variety of colours. And two things it does. Number one, it can take the contrast away between the colour of your skin and the colour of your hair, so you don't see the skin through as much. And so you're it, you basically dyeing your skin. Yeah, but it's also coating the hairs um, the same colour, and it's making the hairs, it's coating them with like a powdery material, and it's making them look bulkier. So it's bulking up the hair shafts, and it's also taking away the white of the skin, uh, essentially it disguising the hair loss. And so do you think that that is what David Beckham could have used on his hair? If the pictures are, are telling the truth and, and the time scale is correct, then it does look appear like that's the case, yeah. But it's not te- it's not permanent. This is just f- for the day and then it washes off. Is that right? You know, it, it's makeup for hair. That's makeup what it is. Hair. So yeah. you, you put it on and if you shower your, ha- your hair, it'll, it'll, it'll come off. Um, and it's very popular. A lot of people do it. And in, in, to be fair, on TV and in the media, quite a lot of, 
TV presenters and, and, and in movies, they, they, they do that because even if somebody is not particularly bald, the bright lights and, 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 and all that exaggerate one's thinness and it's very common to use that in, in, that, in those kind of circumstances. The temptation to go up and rub somebody's hair to see if they've got it on. <laughs> yeah, because it, it just washes out, right? Is that right? It does wash out. Uh, so if you also if you if you put it on and you want to go out, you're supposed to seal it with with ordinary hairspray okay. because what that does it takes away the powdery look. Plus, if you if you get rained on, that could be oh. awful, couldn't it? Because I mean that's like those old fashioned dyes that people yeah. would put in there, running down and your it's face. all running down your face. I mean, but, but I mean, is this a common practice now for for men? Are they becoming more vain about? the sort of male pattern baldness? Because there was a time when men would think nothing of, say, for example, if they were losing a bit of hair on top, uh, they just shaved the head. And this kind of shaved head look doesn't seem to be around as much these days. No, no, the shaved look is very popular. But what's changed is that people are, are care about the way they feel about themselves. I mean, I think in my experience, men don't do these things because they're vain. They do it because they feel they, they, they don't feel right about themselves. So now people still are into the short haircut, but the difference, they don't want to look like they're doing it because they've lost hair. Yeah, and Dr. Besson, what's the what are the different the, the other different treatments for baldness, the permanent ones? Because I mean, I don't know whether I was using the right terminology. You know that there's sort of there used to be plugs or transplants, and some was taking follicles from other places in the body, and some is something that, and then sort of weaves and wigs and all these different ones. Sure. So the the, the these camouflage products, they're not treatments. They're just like they're camouflage. Yeah, they're they're there. So the treatments can be classed into medical or, or surgical. So a variety of medications that could um, uh, slow down the process, stop you from getting worse, uh, and people on that if they start young so they don't go as bold when they're older. The surgery, is, uh, which is hair transplant in, a, in its variety of forms over time, is designed to put hairs back where, where, where they disappeared. You simply move them from the back and the sides of the head to, to the top, and it's a bit like repotting uh, a plant, really. Um, Hair pieces and weaves and all that, they're not treatment. Again, they're like yeah. the camouflage because that's not your hair. It's just like a, wearing a, a disguise, really. Yeah. And does anybody wear a, a toupee these days or are they consigned yeah, to yeah. Oh, Really? Yeah, I mean, it's not. It's, oh, we're a medical practice, so we, I don't, I don't, uh, yes. we, we don't have patients with that. But there are um, places where you can do that. And, and there's two reasons why men may do that. Number one, if they desire a really a very thick look where it's not possible to achieve that with, with, with medical treatments, or they've lost so much hair, yet they really desire the look with hair that nothing else would help them, and that would be their only option. And what, was, sorry to interrupt, and what, mm. what were plugs? So plugs were the very early form of hair transplants. Right. Um, same That's thing like the one Frank Sinatra had, right? Well, he's one example, Frank Sinatra, uh, Bob Hope, um, um, lots of famous uh, um, celebrities from the past had that done. And what is, it's the same as today, taking hair from the back to the front. It, the difference is that the pieces they removed were too large. So they looked artificial. They looked that well, you hence the term plugs. Yeah. Now what we do is a lot more minute and also all microscopic, and the pieces are small. That means you can put them closer together, so it resembles more what what a natural hair looks like. And how much, for example, would somebody like Wayne Rooney have spent on his hair transplant? 
So obviously I can't, I, I don't have no idea how much he paid, but somebody who would have the amount of work that he'd had yeah. in t- today is probably talking about somewhere around seven or eight thousand pounds per procedure. Okay. Uh, yeah. Per and, procedure. So yeah, how, how many, many pre- how many procedures? Well, 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 well Wayne Rooney, I understand, may have had a couple of these procedures, so he would have spent, you know, uh, so somebody like him would have had to spend something like fifteen thousand pounds over the two procedures. Okay. All right. Well, listen, Dr. Bessem Faljo, Medical Director of the Institute of Trichologists. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.